So I just made the mistake of going on Twitter and looking at the profile of Laura Loomer, a truly deranged human being with MAGA talking points, a photograph of herself with a bullhorn, and 741,200 followers. And Laura identifies herself in her bio as an investigative journalist, as do so many political hacks on social media. And this shouldn't have to be said, but I'll say it. Being a partisan hack actually eliminates you from being a political investigative journalist. Just as you can't root for the Oklahoma City Thunder and cover the Oklahoma City Thunder, you can't fucking post all sorts of crazy-ass conspiracy nonsense without verification or reporting and refer to yourself as a, quote, investigative journalist. There are many problems we, as a profession, face. One of the greatest is hacks, frauds, liars, and nutjobs masquerading as one of our own. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm the New York Times bestselling author of 10 books and the host of Two Writers Sling and Yang, the podcast where one writer, me, talks writing with another writer every single week. And today's guest is James Edwards III, the phenomenal Detroit Pistons beat writer for The Athletic, and a man who has seen some losing. This is episode number 345. Let's sling some Yang. Dad, your podcast sucks, and face looks like a bowl of cereal that's been left in the sun for too long. All right, James Edwards III, I just want you to know, and I'm not joking when I say this, I've been doing this podcast for, I don't know, seven years, and this is the first time when I told my wife and kids who I was having on, they were all like, oh, that's a really good idea, even though, no way. I swear to God, because maybe Jimmy Kimmel, but nobody in my family besides me really cares about sports, but... We are all intrigued by the Detroit Pistons this season and their 27-game losing streak. And when I told them I was having on a Pistons writer, they were in on that. So congrats on making me look somewhat you know, relevant in the Perlman household. Well, hey, listen, that's a lot of pressure. Uh, maybe more pressure than the Pistons are facing right now, but I'm up for the challenge. Hopefully get a win today. I uh, appreciate you having me. Big fan of the podcast. Big fan of your work. Um, I'm honored to be on here. Well, hopefully I can live up to that. Um, <laughs> so episode 300 of this podcast, I had Sean Powell on and Sean mm-hmm. Powell is now with the NBA network, but he was covering the original Miami heat their first year when they were dreadful. And I was genuinely fascinated by that point in his life and the covering a dreadful, dreadful team. You are covering what may well go down as the most dreadful basketball team of all time. A team that is in the midst as we record this of a 27 game losing streak. And I'm just going to throw a big blunt, softball of a question at you what is that like man it's it's hard to put into words honestly it's it's not as bad as people from the outside might think and the reason i say that is there are aspects that are let me try to get into all of them the part that's not that bad is the guys in the locker room like they have a great group of guys um and that is something that the front office, despite the mistakes, they knew that they were going to be losing a lot the first few years of the rebuild. Uh, they didn't expect this, of course. But part of their thinking was getting guys in here who would be able to handle what it would what it's going to take those first few years to get through this. Um, and from Isaiah Stewart to Cade Cunningham, uh, Bojan Bogdanovich, Asar Thompson, Jade Nivey, like these guys are like, good human beings and like understand our job and don't like we're not walking in there 
can I, Hey, can I ask you a couple questions? No, get away from like, it's, they're doing their job as professionals. And I, and that's, that's when it gets tough, right? Like you hear like, yeah, I'm covering a team that's on pace to be the worst team in NBA history and, and likely the worst Pistons team. But there was some teams in the early 2010s for the Pistons where it was like anarchy, uh, rebelling against the coach. Like this isn't that. So it could be worse, believe it or not. Now the hard part is what, what do I write? Like, I feel like I've written the same story for the last two months. It's very hard to kind of sprinkle in like good, like at this point in the, in the rebuild, like the, I could get by the first three years and people loved it with like individual development. Like watch this, watch that. Like they were supposed to lose right now. It's kind of like people are over that. So Cade's really turned a corner and I was, I'm able to like tuck one in every couple weeks, but that's the hard part, right? Like, I just feel like I'm writing the same thing over and over. And then, you know, our job, like the fans want people fired. They want this, they want that. But it's like, I know that's not coming at least not right now. So it's like, I can't lean into that because it would be a waste of time for me. So that's the tough part, man, is just like finding stuff to write about. But I will say that because they are in a, such a historic losing streak, and I've always done well with like readership and subscriptions and stuff, but now that it's like a national story, like it's amplified times 50. So in a weird way, does covering a team this dreadful give you a relevancy that you would not have were the Pistons winners of nine games at this point? 100%. Yep. 100%. Yeah. It's a national story now. One thing that fascinates me about this Pistons team, like I mentioned, the, the expanse in Miami Heat were terrible. They lost a ton of games in a row. Mm -hmm. But their best player was Ronnie Cycli, who went on to be kind of just a mediocre to good NBA player. And they had a ton of guys like Sylvester Grand, John Sunvold, guys you've never thought of, right? maybe even never heard of. I look at this roster and I look at this team and I think there's actually a lot of talent on this team. Like this is not a team that you would think two and 27 or am I being a naive person here? No, no. First of all, nobody should be that bad, I guess, except if you're that Sixers team that the Pistons were tied with that was signing guys the morning of and playing them 40 minutes a night later on that day. Like that's different to me. And, and again, it's not scientifically proven, but Jeff, you've been around sports long enough. I've been around sports. It's, at this point, it's psychological. This team started two and one and was a basket away from beating Miami Heat on opening night and being three and zero. Oh. And like there, there was just a different. I hate using the word swagger, but there was just a different swagger about this team that first week of the season. And then where it turned was they were up eighteen against Portland in the fourth game of the season and lost the game by ten in the second half. And it was turnovers. It was dumb fouls and I get in that locker room and it's as dejected. It's like somebody passed away. And to me and, and in talking to guys, it felt like it was that moment where it's like, Oh man, I thought we were over this. Like I thought we were taking that step to we're not the young guys that are going to beat ourselves anymore. And to me, it spiraled since then the tough schedule, but you look up two losses in a row turns into five, five turns into nine. And then you're like, what the heck? And it's a bunch of young guys on this roster who have never won before. So not only are you like asking them to learn how to win on the fly, you're also asking them to get out of a hole that is every single day turning into history. And listen, I think if Bojan Bogdanovic doesn't miss the first 
month and a half, two months of the season, we're probably not having this conversation. Uh, maybe not on this podcast. Um, if Monte Morris has played a game for the Pistons uh, at, or he started healthy, like again, Monte Morris is a baseline solid NBA player. But if you look at the Pistons struggles, they turn the ball over so much. And Monte Morris is by all every metric, one of the best assist to turnover ratio guys in the basketball the last few years. So like, there's a world where we're again, we're not talking if even Monte Morris plays. Uh, they just had too much on young players. And I think the psychological aspect kicked in where it's like now you're thinking about, dang, we lost this many. Okay, now we've lost this many. And then you crumble down the down the stretch. They have young guys that make mistakes and they're young at the most critical spots in basketball, which is the backcourt and the front court. And those guys make the most decisions. And uh you see it nightly where it's it's like some head scratching stuff. It's it, to me, it's just a spiral of a young team that doesn't know how to win and is asked to claw, climb out of a hole that not only young teams don't really get themselves themselves into, but even veteran teams. It's like it's a, it's a it's a path rarely traveled, I'd say. So what is it like to walk into a locker room after whatever 15th straight loss and 18th straight loss need to get information from guys who are going through this misery? Like what is the approach that a journalist as you're, such as yourself needs to take to get what you need at a time when probably no one really wants to say very much? Yeah, that's a great question. Certain days are better than others, right? Like, like I mentioned that Portland game was like, uh, nobody's really in here. The guys that are have their heads down. Like today's probably a column day, right? Like I'll, I'll sit in here, look around to see if there's anybody that wants to speak. If not, push come to shove I have a column I can write or uh the Brooklyn game the other night that they almost won that game and lost it's definitely more moody than if they lose to Milwaukee right like I, I think they're they're not upset if they lose to Milwaukee but when they I mean they're upset of course nobody I don't want to say that but you know what I mean like having a, a chance to beat Brooklyn and falling and then leading the record is a different thing so luckily for me I've been doing this I've been covering this team this is my seventh season Everybody in that locker room who was drafted by Detroit, I've been there every single second of their career. I like to think that I've handled myself with good decorum. I've written good stories on these guys. Um, I've gotten to know them beyond just like metrics and stats to the point where we, I have good relationships with a lot of guys. So there's guys I can, if I go up to that, they understand I have a job to do. So Cade has been phenomenal with that. Me and Cade have a great relationship. Me and Isaiah Stewart have a great relationship. Uh, me and Asar Thompson have a great relationship. Boyan is a pro. Like he knows, like he doesn't run from any of this. And there's a few other guys too. So like I said, kind of at the top of the show, it could be worse, but because there are good people in that locker room and guys who understand that we have a job to do and understand that like the reality of the situation is what it is. It hasn't been that bad. And and for me personally, just building relationships throughout the years. And I don't know if we'll get into this, but I'm a big believer in just like ch chatting with guys without a recorder. So in moments like this, when I do need something, they'll help me out. Like just getting to know guys, talk about something other than basketball. And it's, I think it's paying off now. Wait, I dig that topic. So you go into a locker room and you don't always go in with an agenda or in a way you do go in with an agenda, but it's not an agenda that people would think, which is the agenda is to just establish a decorum with someone to establish a relation with someone. Are you thinking five steps ahead when you do that? Like when you go up to whoever Monte Morris and you're talking about, Oh, I heard you adopted a Chihuahua, like whatever. 
are you thinking about what your small talk with this person is going to be, even though it's just small talk? Yes. And it, let me explain. I, and I don't want it to sound like I'm playing like a mind game with them because that's not the case. Like we're around these people all the time. Like I genuinely enjoy talking to most of them. They're good guys. We have, I'm, I'm now I'm older than everybody almost on the team. But when I started, I was welcome to my life. <laughs> it's insane. Like I'd looked up, I went, I went from 24 to 31 in the blink of an eye. It's insane. So, so there's a couple things like me and Isaiah Stewart, we both are big sneaker heads. And he just got out of like a deal with Puma not long ago. So he's back wearing Nikes and Jordan. So like, he'll always like, he I like to wear sneakers to games. And so he'll have something new and he'll like look down and like, we'll make like a, a, a joke of it. Right. Like that's our, like, that's our thing. Kate is somebody you can just like, he's a down to earth people person. Like you can just go talk to him about anything. So, but one, one thing I do like to do is like pick a moment from a game, like whether it's like a call that I think a guy should have gotten didn't, or if somebody said something to them and I'm curious what they said, I'll bring that up in the locker room. Like, Hey, like, what did they say? Like, why'd you get whistle for a foul there? Or why didn't you get the foul there? Or what do you, I saw you was talking trash to you. Like, what did he say? Just like small stuff like that. Like, and I, I won't have my recorder. I'll have my hands in my, in my pockets. Uh, I'll have my hands out just to like show that it's like very chill. And um, I think it's important because these guys, especially this team, they've lost a lot of games. It's easy to, Everybody, every question that they get could be like, why are you so bad? Why is this so bad? Why is that so bad? And it's like, I have a fortunate job where I don't have to write every day. And I, that's been the case for six years. So like, to me, it's more important to establish those relationships to let them know that like, Hey, we do have something in common. Hey, um, if you're doing good, I'm going to write a good story. And if you're doing bad, I'm going to have to write a negative story, but it doesn't, I'm not going to depict your character. Like, I'm not going to say this guy sucks or like, I'm going to point it out with facts. Like, I think they, I, they have a good respect for how I go about my job and being able to go in the locker room, even after 25 losses and hold a conversation with a guy, I think is years in the making, right? Like they have to trust you. They have to know that you're, they have to respect you, trust you and know that you're like, you're not there to like, what, what if I ask what a guy said to you and he says something like deflammatory that I'm not going to just like run with that. Like that, that builds up years of trust. So I like to take bits and pieces from games. Sometimes I'll be like, I'll ask about the situation that they're in and like, Hey, off the record, like X, Y, and Z, like, do you wish this happened or that happened? There was a thing that happened during the, uh, it's just popped in my head during the major league playoffs where a member of the Phillies, I think was mock a member of uh, the Braves or someone was mocking Bryce Harper in the locker room. Mm -hmm. I mean, I remember this and that reporter reported it. Uh, the, the person was not a beat writer or beat, you know, journalist with any of those teams felt free to report it as a guy who covers a team. If you are in the Pistons locker room, just as an example, and you hear Marvin Bagley making fun of Giannis's accent, I don't know, you know, something. Yeah. Is that not something you can report? Um, I think you can. Right. So like we don't take photos and videos inside the Pistons locker room. Like that's just like a respect and courtesy thing. I didn't have an issue with that being reported. I personally wouldn't do it because I don't think it's worth, I don't think it's worth it. Like that it's a moment that'll live for 24 hours, whatever. Everybody thinks it's funny and it's cool, but then guess what? You got to go right back in that locker room and you got to go back the next day and the next day and the next day and the next day. To me, that's not worth it. But I, I don't think it's like, I don't necessarily think they were off base for doing it. Uh, but I listen, <laughs> I've covered a lot of bad basketball and I'm I'm thankful that 
this organization and the PR staff like is aware of how bad it's been. So like they're receptive to my story ideas. They're receptive. Players are receptive to doing things other than talking about other all the losing. If I have a off the wall story I want to do, like I can get that. To me, the moment of something that happens in the locker room just isn't worth it. I I personally don't find it worth it, but I don't think it was wrong to do. That's actually really interesting because we do live in an age. We live in the sugar rush age of journalism, which mm-hmm. is, oh, look at everyone retweeting me, right? Look at everyone retweeting me and liking my tweet. So like that was a sugar rush moment, you know, for that journalist. I'm sure that was a sugar rush moment. But when you're playing the long game, which you are, I guess you really have to evaluate and and reevaluate sugar rush moments to determine whether they're actually worthwhile. Yep. That's, and that's just me. And, and again, everybody does their job differently. There's no right way. There's no wrong way. My style of writing and the type of stuff I like to do. I like to dive into the person. I like to ask questions that, for example, you use Marvin Bagley as an example. Like what if I want to spend 10 minutes to talk about Marvin Bagley, just starting therapy or something, right? Like, to me, that's far more valuable and far more important than I'm not. I don't know. And I know I know you're the you're the probably the same way. And a lot of the people you've had on this show are the same way. I didn't get in this to, like, be. Uh, the most retweeted or most followed reporter, right? Like I got in this to tell good stories and I got in this to like because I'm curious and I, I like to scratch that itch of of curiosity like. I write for the Jeff Perlman's of the world. That's my audience. My, my obviously job is to inform Pistons readers and for, and fans and and basketball fans alike. But like in my brain, I'm writing for the Jeff Perlman's, the Mirren Faders, the Candace uh, Buckner's, the Marcus Thompson's like that's, I want, when they read my stories, I want them to like, okay. Like I want their respect. Like that's, that's, that's where I'm at with it. And that's what I kind of value in this job. I talk to them and we all think you suck. Sorry. <laughs> Awkward. <laughs> hey, I actually got it. That was weird. Cause I was wondering why I got that group chat from like five yeah. numbers. I didn't realize I said, Hey, you suck. Wait, I'm kind of, I'm still fascinated by this relationship thing. Yeah. And I've talked about this with other writers, but this is really interesting. You're a guy from Michigan. You're the player's age, still in that age range. You could still be an NBA player. Mm-hmm. Um, should be, but that's another, should be. Obviously you're yeah. a senior guy. Does establishing relationships mean they give a shit about you also? I think so. If they're genuine relationships, I think so. Like, as you know, like you have better relationships with other, with certain people more than others when you cover a team. Like that's just the nature of the beast. You either relate with somebody more or you, whatever, like it just is what it is. I personally think that my relationships, the best relationships I have in that locker room are genuine. Like, I'm trying to think like, here's an example. Like I mentioned to you, me and Isaiah Stewart, both really like sneakers. There was a trip. I wasn't on a one-off trip. I don't always do one-off trips where they just in a one-off trip for people. I don't know. is like tonight, for example, the Pistons are playing in Boston and then they come right back home. I'm here at home resting because I'll be gone for nine days at the top of the week or top of next week. So, but there was a one-off trip and Isaiah wore some very, like he finally got this shoe in. That's like super rare. And I wasn't there for him to show me. So we had a, the other reporter was there. He had the reporter take a photo to send to me to show me. Right. So like, or there's Cade and they lose a game 
I forget which game it was, maybe Orlando a few weeks ago. And Kate, I'm I'm standing near Kate, and Kate just kind of looks at me like I, I haven't said anything to him. I'm letting him get dressed. Kate kind of looks at me. He's like, "Feel bad for you." I was like, "Why? What do you mean?" Like, this can't be easy. I was like, "Listen, Cade, I get paid to travel the world and talk about basketball. It's okay." He's like, "It's a blessing, isn't it?" I'm like, "Seriously, it is. Like, this is tough, but like, at the end of the day." And I know sports fans are sports fans, but it's just basketball. It's not life or death. And so there's just like moments like that where it's like you do question like, are they just like feeding into the the relationship because they need me as much as I kind of need them? But I think because I don't I can do my job without needing them, especially in the midst of a 27 game lose streak. I could bash every player I want and walk in there and not care. But to me, it's important to have that relationship for one. This team is young. I'm going to be around them for a long time. Two, everybody has a story, and I want to be able to tell their story. And three, you obviously are a a journalist down the middle. I've written story about Cade's turnovers. I've written stories about Isaiah's struggles. But at the end of the day, you're around these people so much, you do get to know them, and you get to there's there's a natural relationship that comes there. So. And I think because of the way I go about building relationships, I can tell when a relationship is genuine or not or not genuine. You have a very young team. We live in a different age. I mean, when I came up covering baseball, you'd walk into a clubhouse and everyone would, it's kind of crazy, would still be, they would have, especially in New York, they'd have the newspapers out and you'd see them reading like the daily news and unfolding the back you know, pages. Do these guys read the athletic? Do they read what you write? I'm, yeah, I'm trying to think of an example. Like I know, so I did a big story on Isaiah Stewart, either his rookie or his second year, about him and his father and their relationship. Um, and then the Pistons, like a, either a few months later or a year later, like did a a story on Isaiah and his hometown. And like the dad in the dad's house, my story like is printed out and framed in the house. So like that's one example. I know Cade reads. Yes, I believe most of them read. Yes, they're on their phones all the time. And I've, I have good relationships with the agents who will text me stuff be like, hey, I, I appreciate you writing this or, hey, I disagree with this or, hey, I agree with that. Like, so I know it either gets to them or they read themselves. I'm fairly confident in that. They set the NBA single season record with 27 straight loss. Uh, and your piece was actually the headline was Pistons set NBA single season record with 27 straight loss. Colin, how did Detroit get here? And your lead was the 2023-24 Detroit Pistons penned an unfortunate new chapter in the NBA's history books Tuesday, becoming the sole owners of the league's longest single-season losing streak. Detroit fell 118-112 to 112 to the Brooklyn Nets at Little Caesars Arena, marking its 27th straight loss. And the piece, it's interesting, because if you were a strict newspaper writer, if you were doing this for the free press, it'd be a strict, straight-down-the-line, Pistons lost a game, it's a historic loss, here's the other losers in the past, and here's what happened in this game. And it seems like The Athletic allows you to sort of funk around a little bit and be like, well, how do they get here? Not just a lot game about the loss, but how do they get here? And I wonder, like, you're sitting there, you're watching this loss. Team's falling apart. They lose to Brooklyn. It sucks. 27 losses, blah, 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 blah. During the game, are you already aware what you're going to write if they lose? So... I'm glad you you brought that stuff you just read up as the reference. So I actually, the part you just read, I wrote like the analysis at the end. So what you're reading is what we call a headline at The Athletic. 
which is something to get out there very quick, like right after a big moment. Like, so during like the last few minutes of the game, they'll send me three questions to answer and I'll answer it. And then they format that piece and then like put my analysis in there just to have something quick. Uh The story I wrote after that game, which I actually wrote the night before was how this moment is 15 years in the making. And this is kind of the um, benefit of working at the athletic and, and listen, the newspaper reporters, they could have written ahead too. like they they could have planned for this just to give people a look like uh, behind the curtain. So I got home from Florida where my mom just recently moved for Christmas. I got back on Christmas night around seven o'clock. I get home and I, I sit down at my desk and I'm like, all right, if this team loses, this is the, all eyes are on the Pistons. Right. So like, how can I be the. The person you go to in this moment. So I sat down and I was like, obviously being from Michigan, having an understanding of how bad it's been for the Pistons for 15 years. I'm like, of course, locally people know that, right? Nationally, people that know, I remember the Pistons being really good for a long time. Like what happened? That's who I was writing for. So I sat down and I wrote like a 3000 word story. I was like, the Pistons 27 straight losses this season is 15 years in the making. I crafted it 3000 words sent it to my editors. They edited it all morning. We got it. We got it right to run like 15 minutes after the game ended. So that's kind of where in in that instance, I wrote ahead. So we have a, like I said, what you read is called a headline, which is basically as close to a newser as you can get. Like that takes me 30 seconds to do. That's just for, I don't even tweet that out. That's for the higher ups and SEO and all that stuff, whatever. My story that I wrote after that game was ready to go the night before. And when I know a moment's coming, I like to do that. And if I have to pivot, I'll pivot. Like it is what it is. But worst come to worst, if the Pistons would have beat Brooklyn, I could have ran that story that I spent Christmas night writing two days later. Cause at the end of the day, they have three wins, right? And the and the point still stands. But I thought for me, like the bigger picture, like everybody, this is a national story. All eyes are on the Pistons, weirdly. I need to serve the people who were like, what in the world happened to the Pistons? Well, this is what happened, and this is why they got here to 27 today. So um, there are times throughout a game um, when I'm trying to capture the moment live where I I know what I'm writing. There are times when it comes in the locker room with a conversation with a guy. just really depends. But, yeah, th- that specific, after 27, I stayed ready so I didn't have to get ready. The Athletic is obviously a, a unique model, and they measure how many people subscribe off of your stories. I don't know. Do you feel like you are writing for subs? Is that a thing that enters your head at all? I need to get blank. I need to keep this going with blank. I'm not just writing the stories I want to write. I need to think about what other factors. Um, Great question. I do think I do write for subs, but I also think that the stuff I've been very blessed and fortunate to um, be one of the highest subscription sellers at the company, despite covering a bad team. The Pistons fan base is larger than people think. Um, I think I do a good job of bringing eyeballs to a team that either you're not a fan of or don't care about through various ways. I think that is one of my strengths. I do think I write for subs, but the things I like to write about, I've learned are what draw subscriptions. So big features, those are big sellers. Breaking down why a trade happened or why a signing happened, like hard-nosed reporting, 
breaking a trade. Those are all fun parts of the job. And those are all things that are high subsellers. Uh, explaining how something got somewhere, like bigger picture. Like those are the things that actually sell the most. So it's the the stuff that kind of the athletic has built its foundation on big features, A plus reporting, behind the scenes, how this happened inside XYZ. Like those are, if you look across most people's metrics, I would guarantee those are the ones that sell the most. And luckily, like those are the ones that I enjoy doing the most because one, I love writing features. That's that's where I feel like I, I excel the most. But then reporting, right? And you know how long it takes and how hard it is to get sources to be able to break stuff and and confirm stuff or write like how the Pistons hired Monty Williams to a big like the whole rundown of how that happened. Like that's not easy to do. But that's the stuff people like to read. So in a sense, yes. Like, and I have no issue doing there's stuff that sells that's what people might view as clickbait, right? Like here are uh, I, I send trade proposals to 10 of my colleagues who cover certain teams. And we talk about if this trade makes sense, like that could be considered clickbait, but it also can be informative too, where I'm like, yeah, I'm not, I'm hearing that the Pistons don't want John Collins, even though I'm talking, we're talking about a proposed John Collins, trade. like that's also informative. So my goal in every story I write is to make sure somebody learned something that they didn't know before. And as long as I do that, I think I, I'm doing my job. Do you need to care, 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 care? And what I mean is like, not just care, but like, let's say the Pistons tomorrow trade Joe Harris for a second round pick, someone's second round pick. Like, mm-hmm. do you need to have, holy shit, blah, 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 blah. They just traded Joe Harris. Or can it just be like, eh, okay, they traded Joe Harris. I'll write something, not a big deal. Like, do you need to, do you really need to live this shit? Or is it a no, little overstated? That would be a tweet. I don't even think we would. I don't. I definitely wouldn't write a story, and I don't even know if the athletic would do a headline on that. Like that's to me, that's just a tweet. With all due respect to Joe Harris, loyal listener of this podcast is very, uh, very upset with you right now. Joe, you know, you know, my guy. You're a very nice guy, Joe. You're, I'm a big fan, but we're we're not. That would just serve a tweet. I'm sorry. Before we continue with two writers slinging yang, a quick word from our sponsor. Hey, this is Jeff Perlman, and I'm here with my daughter Casey. So, uh, do you have any New Year's resolutions for 2024? I want to exercise more. Same. I'd like to stop listening to so many K-pop songs. Yes, please. I'd like to stop doing stupid ads for podcasts no one listens to. I'm not listening. And most importantly, I'd like to go to royalretros.com, click on the tab for the 2001 XFL, and order my very own handcrafted, one-of-a-kind Otis Floyd San Francisco Demons jersey. So what's stopping you? I need your credit card. All right, before you got to The Athletic, you spent uh, a decade at the Lansing State Journal. You were a reporter there. And uh, you wrote a uh, you wrote a really good story. You're a Michigan State grad. Mm-hmm. You wrote a piece back in the Lord's year of 2015. Lansing boxer Higdon will fight in the 2016 Olympic trials. I hope you remember this one. It was about Arkees Higdon. The, uh, the lead, I'm just going to read the lead. As he stood in the middle of the ring with his arm raised in victory, the realization of what he had just accomplished hit Arkees Higdon like an uppercut. The 19-year-old boxer from Lansing had just defeated Saul Sanchez of California by decision to earn a trip to the championship bout of the Pathway of the Podium Tournament in Colorado Springs, Colorado. More important, on that day, June 26, he moved one step closer to his dream. By reaching the final bout of the USA Boxing Sanctioned Tournament, Higdon earned a spot in the 2016 Olympic Trials. Now, it's actually this really lovely piece about this 114-pound fighter who came from a really tough background, faced legal problems, and here he is sitting here in Olympic trial. You are a young African-American man out of Michigan. 
mm-hmm. writing about many young African Americans, some from Michigan, some from different places, with the Pistons, a lot of guys based in Michigan. Mm-hmm. And I do feel like this profession, a lot of times, it's filled with old guys like me who are white, sometimes grumpy, seeing a lot of stuff in sports, but maybe can't empathize or choose not to empathize or don't even understand what it would be to empathize with the plight of young black men and young black women coming out of less than ideal environments and sort of pursuing this dream. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if you might have a sense of empathy that I could not possibly have that comes with being you, or if that's just a lame excuse for an older white guy and I could have the same empathy and understanding you have, I just need to research it a little more. Ooh, that's a great question. So I think part of it is the empathy. I'm from Flint, Michigan. The only thing people know about Flint, Michigan, if you're not from Michigan, is there are a lot of basketball players. There's been a lot of violence and the water's bad. And Michael Moore. And Michael Moore. Yes. And Michael Moore. And I grew up in a place where there was some of the most creative, funny, different people that I've still ever come across to this day. And it's like, man, if other people knew these people, they, these guys would be famous. These gals would be famous. Like there's some just like characters. And to me, I've just always been fascinated by like the backstory. And I think when you come from that type of environment, the backstory. So for example, like you meet a, like that boxer, that that story at, I remember him just being the sweetest young man. His story was rough. And it's just like that dichotomy. Like, I just can't imagine being as sweet as that guy was, like as sweet of a human being, but coming from that environment. And it's like, how does that happen? Like, uh, clearly he's raised well, but the circumstances weren't great. Like, let me learn more about that because that's fascinating to me. The dichotomy of like how somebody carries themselves versus where they come from is like the most fast, like the most fast. And I keep bringing up Isaiah Stewart when he chased LeBron and and all that stuff. Like if you don't know Isaiah Stewart, you think he's a madman. Literally the sweetest dude you'll ever meet in your life. Like, yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. Like, how does that happen? Because this guy has a switch that he can turn on. But in his everyday life, it's everybody wants to be around him and it. I just think everybody has a story. Like I could walk outside right now and find the first person walking down the street. And I think I could crank out like a good 1000 word story on them because somebody came from somewhere. Somebody had went through something in their life. And I just think people from those environments have gone through more than a lot of other environments. And I think it's hard for a lot of people to fathom. How do you blossom out of that? And because I come from where I come from, have friends who have come up in that environment, in those environments, have family who have come up in those environments, have come up in those environments myself. Like you understand that there's more out there that people just don't know and people don't understand or can't understand unless you bring it to light. So that's why it's so important to me, like to, to just always have the personal touch of my story because you can even, it can even explain why a guy's going through a rough period on the floor or on the field or on the rink. Like it just, to me, it's it just you have to tell the whole story. And I think learning about those environments uh, and learning 
about learning about accepting where you come from, but not being okay with staying there. Those types of things like is fascinating to me. And I think it is a product of like where I come from and how I was raised and, and, and things like that. But I just, I just also think I'm just very curious. I think uh, one of the things that goes under, underappreciated in this job, people say, you know, what does it take to be a journalist? Well, writing and, you know, blah, 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 curiosity, et cetera. But I think what, what goes overlooked is a genuine, genuine sense of empathy that you can look at someone and see where they came from. Like I remember when I was covering baseball and I was the biggest anti-steroid writer I knew where I was steroids, cheating, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And then I started thinking about it more and I was like, okay, you're a kid from the Dominican. All right. Your family is dirt poor. You come to America. Here's this dream. You can make millions and millions of more dollars by putting this stuff in your body. It is family life-changing money mm -hmm. why do you give a shit if it's cheating if it's you know break, breaking the rules of major League baseball this is your family this is food in their mouths and i think once you start looking at people in that way and trying to understand where they come from what they're going through what their families are going through it changes the way you do this job in major major ways uh, yep i think that is a undervalued or under talked about undersold aspect of journalism i also think people skills being able to walk in the locker room and hold a conversation with somebody, being able to talk about something with talk about something with somebody without a recorder, or having it always be transactional. That and the one you just mentioned are the like that's what helps get people to that next level. I think. Do you have any optimism for journalism? Man, I was just talking with somebody about this the other day. Um, I don't want to give you an answer on that, but let me say this the thing that scares me is that i almost feel like my generation and there's some under me like i go and talk to students at michigan state all the time and there's still some of us left but with all the mediums there are it's almost like music right where if you have a couple raps written on a paper you can buy a ten dollar microphone at best buy to make a beat steal somebody else's beat and you can upload music right almost the same thing in journalism if you if you think you know sports you like sports you can get a camera you can yell in front of it you can get on youtube you can make your own wordpress i just worry about the lack of professionalism that could be ahead and i'm not talking about like people who are like fans of a team whatever like if you learn the professionalism of the job that gets beaten out of you but i worry about I worry about the professionalism going forward and uh, people understanding. I know it's just sports and I know a lot of people just see it as sports, but you have to carry yourself as a professional. This is professional. This is, this is professionalism. This, this, yes, what we do is cool. We get to be around NBA players. We get to talk basketball. We get to jump on planes, X, Y, and Z, but there's a way that you carry yourself about that and i worry that that could be gone i worry that fandom will seep too much into into journalism um that's my biggest concern and i do think there are young people just like uh when i was young like the, we we learned from those older than us i think there are a, a good crop of young people who do understand that but the fear of everything being so easy to do like i said you can hop on youtube or TikTok and be a sports journalist that scares me 
because then people are starting to going to start crossing wires and what's journalism and what's not. I mean, it's really an interesting conundrum because on the other hand, so I teach out here at a, at a school, uh, Chapman University, and I say to my students who want to go into journalism, I'm like, you have no excuse for not starting a podcast now. You have no mm-hmm. excuse for not starting a Substack now. Like there are yep. things you can do that even you at age 31 couldn't do when you were in college a decade ago. It's blessing curse territory. Yep. I, I think that's a great way to put it. You have people now have way more resources at their disposal than we ever did. But with that said, there's still things you have to learn about how this job should be done and how, how you get to a certain point in this profession that I worry gets lost in translation because of it. You've listened to this podcast. You know, I'm required to ask what's the, uh, what's the greatest confrontation you've had in your career? Ooh, can I tell you without saying names, can I tell you about a unique situation I found myself in that it didn't lead to a confrontation, but it was need. We, there had to be a conversation. I would love to hear it. So there was a person in the Pistons front office that was, it got on my radar that they were getting ready to get let go. And I was talking with a coworker about it. And he was like, well, you have a good relationship with them. Like check the temperature. I'm like, all right. So I'm texting him, put throwing out feelers. And I had gotten the sense that yes, like he's getting ready to, to be gone. I go back to text my coworker and I end up texting the guy I called said, Oh yeah. Hey, I think he's. <laughs> so my heart drops as I get a text back and he's like, Hey, do you just want to talk? So we get on the phone and we talk about it and it was fine. Like he understood my job. He explained it, but that was just like a mistake. That's like, I'll never forget the feeling of my heart dropping in that situation. And we talked and it was fine. And like, he understood I had a job to do and, um, he explained his side of why he was leaving and stuff like that. But that was a very unfortunate. Um, in terms of confrontation, the biggest one that comes to mind. So I, I've kind of learned. And I don't know if this is the case now, just because uh, athletes today are a little bit different. But I think more so if you guys will maybe just ignore you for a little bit, if they're upset with you, I don't know if there's really much confrontation now. But one that comes to mind is when the Pistons. Obviously, as everybody knows, Pistons traded for Blake Griffin. He was really good for the half year he was there and then was really, really good the the year after that. But then we were in L.A. his third season in Detroit, and he's out. His knees, like, failed him at this point. And I wrote a column ahead of the Clippers game in L.A. that, like, this was the worst-case scenario. Something like this is the fear of trading for Blake Griffin. Uh And I know Blake. Me and Blake had a, a really good relationship up to that point. To the point where it's like, well, if I ever saw him, like we were like we would chat. Or he would at least, at very least, say, like, what's up? And I wrote the story the next day, it, it goes live, and we're at shoot around at UCLA. And Blake walks into the the where they do shoot around a little bit later than everybody. I think he was getting treatment or something. And I walk right past him in a hallway. And I'm like, What's up, Blake? Like, I know what I wrote, but like I don't whatever like if he doesn't want to talk to me he doesn't have to talk to me I was like what's up Blake just walk right past me like it was just us and like he heard me uh-huh. but he's still from that old school where it's like there's still like but now I don't I don't think a lot of players are like 
here for of course there's stuff in a press conference of somebody doesn't like a question like there's that that happens way more regularly but in terms of like i've never been like chest to chest with a guy and i think that has a lot to do with just kind of like the newer generation of player i think they'd rather just ignore you if they have an issue with you let me ask you a final question is it possible the detroit pistons finished 2 and 80 is it possible yes it is possible. It is possible. I, I I don't think that happens, but listen, I didn't think I'd be covering a team that lost 27 straight games either. So what's the difference between 27 and another 27 at this point? It, it could happen. It could happen. Do I think it happens? No, it could happen. Though. I'm not. I'll, I'll believe that the Pistons won when I cover the game, write a story, wake up, pinch myself, check to see the score again, and then check to see if my story published, and then make sure I'm not dreaming. Then I'll believe the Pistons won a basketball game. Worst thing for your subscriptions, Pistons going to three-game winning streak. It would be, yes. <laughs> well, what's what kind of actually saves me now is the dog days of, of the season are usually like November to December. At least it can be. Mm-hmm. But all of this going on during then has been like – like I said, it's a national story. So now we get into the new year. Now we start getting into trade deadline and like our guys getting our people getting fired. So it's like, as long as that can kind of take me to the trade deadline, like I'm, I'm good. Cause by then the season's almost over. We're focusing on the draft. So listen, actually, now that I think about it, as tough, as hard as it has been to, to find new and creative ways to cover this losing streak, <laughs> it's been great in terms of having uh statistics to show bosses here in, and, and such right so yeah i mean listen i'm part of history it's different it's unique something that nobody could even fathom happening but it's certainly it's a gift and a curse for sure it's different man it's hard to put into words nothing else you have a story you'll be telling the rest of your life yeah exactly like nobody else can tell can tell this you a couple beat writers can stop at 26 they can't go to 27 well listen I think you're doing great work. You make a losing team really interesting. Maybe they are really interesting, but you write about them in a very interesting way. Thank you. And, uh, I re- yeah, I admire your career and I admire your approach and I appreciate you doing this. Well, vice versa. I've, I've been, like I said, I've been a big fan of yours for a long time. I appreciate all the support you've shown me by having me on here. I believe I was on one of your top uh, 20 stories lists a few times. Like it means a lot. Um, the fact that you're even paying attention and, and watching and even enjoying means, means a ton to me. So um, it's great to do this, and it's it's great to have this relationship, and, and, and thank you again. I want to thank today's guest, James Edwards III, for joining me on Two Riders Singing Yang. You can follow James on Twitter at JLEdwards3 and read his work in The Athletic. If you have a chance and enjoy Two Riders Singing Yang, please go to the vehicle of your choice and leave a nice review. I'd be really appreciative. Music is by the inventive MC White Owl. Thanks again for joining me, and remember, keep riding. Ancient wisdom.